1: over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed.
2: Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore
1: the who, what, when of why we wear. We're your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. One of my favorite compliments that anyone has ever given me was when I was in grad school. After a lecture about the designer we're going to discuss today, One of my fellow classmates remarked that if I had been a socialite during the 1930s and the 1940s, that I absolutely would have been a client of hers. And she was right. I would have. People ask me all the time, who's your favorite designer? And I usually respond, do I have to pick one? Because that's really how I feel. But if I did, it would be Elsa Schiaparelli. She has been called a carpenter of clothes, and her unique style has been dubbed hard chic hard chic in a way that kind of feels at odds with itself sometimes one moment it's wonderfully whimsical and the next moment it can be intoxicatingly severe to me the magic happens when she managed to blend the two add a little sprinkle of her collaborations with the surrealists and this tallies up to genius scaparelli's
2: path into the fashion world was not as direct as many of the designers who we've discussed so far on the show Many early 20th century designers began working in the fashion trades as apprentices during their young teen years. Scaparelli, however, did not begin exploring fashion as a profession until her late 30s. She had a bit of wandering to do before she found her true calling in life. She was born on September 10th at the Palazzo Corsini in Rome. What year she was born, however, is the matter of some debate. Her biographer, Dillis Blum, places the year at 1890 And Schiaparelli's obituary in the New York Times concurs. However, her granddaughter, the former model Marissa Berenson, assigns the year as 1895, while her obituary in Women's Wear Daily says 1896.
1: You know, I mean, maybe. Who doesn't want to knock a few years off their age?
2: In the end, however, we were able to confirm via a copy of her birth certificate that the correct date is indeed 1890. 1890,
1: Yes. Uh, Scaparelli was born into an upper-class family of academics and intellectuals. Her father was the head director of the Palazzo Corsini's library, and he was also a scholar who specialized in Arabic and Islamic linguistics and literature. Her uncle, Giovanni Scaparelli remains famous as the astronomer who discovered the canals on the moon. This, in turn, sparked others' speculations that perhaps life might exist on the lunar surface— and there's actually, Cass, a crater on Mars that's actually named after Schiaparelli's uncle so today. Cool. Um, and her cousin also, uh, he was a well-known academic. He was a well-known Egyptologist, and he made several discoveries, several important discoveries of Egyptian tombs. So there were some seriously big brains in this family, Cass. Yeah, no kidding. But Elsa had the chops to match them.
2: On her mother's side, she descended from Italian aristocracy. Elsa's relationship with her mother, Maria Luisa, was somewhat contentious, however, due to the fact that her mother favored her older sister, Beatrice, who was nicknamed Biche. And we're not really talking secret favorites either. Maria Luisa continuously praised Biche's beauty and harped on Elsa that she was ugly. This just makes me so upset. (laughs) Poor Elsa. I know. As one could imagine, this had a tremendous effect on her she was a difficult but dreamy child with an admittedly rich fantasy life. And in her autobiography, Shocking Life, Elsa wrote about innocently thinking of ways to force herself to become beautiful.
1: This is what she wrote. In her autobiography, she wrote, to have a face covered with flowers like a heavenly garden would indeed be a wonderful thing. And if she could make flowers sprout out all over her face, she would be the only woman of her kind in the entire world. Nasturtium's daisies, morning glories, all in full bloom. With some difficulty, she obtained seeds from the gardener, and these she planted in her throat, ears, and mouth. She felt they ought to grow faster in her warm body than in the soil outside. Thus, she sat waiting for the result. This is what she wrote. And I want you to keep in mind this sort of bittersweet anecdote of Burgeoning self-awareness because it illustrates young Scaparelli's natural predilection for the awe-inspiring and sort of non sequitur aesthetics of the surrealist movement with which she would later become so closely identified.
2: Our listeners may have noticed something a little odd about the quote that April just read. The quote is directly from Scaparelli, but she had a tendency to write about herself in the third person. Other parts of her autobiography are in the first person. This is just one example of her inherently contradictory nature, which she herself was aware of. She actually describes herself as unpredictable but disarmingly simple, profoundly lazy but a furious worker. She calls herself out as being both generous and mean and ultimately declared her life an everlasting
1: question mark. (laughs) Her granddaughter, Marissa Berenson, paints a picture of her grandmother as someone who remained curiously aloof throughout her life. While Scapperly was clearly devoted to her family, it seems she viewed herself as isolated from others from a young age, and she even asked those closest to her, including her family, to call her Scap. Scap was sort of an alter ego that, in her words, she, quote, had only seen in the mirror some kind of fifth dimension. So Scapperly kind of was an enigma to herself, even, perhaps, Cass. Mm -hmm. Um, But we digress a little bit, so can you fill us in a little bit more about her childhood? You said that she was difficult.
2: Yeah, she was probably a little infuriating as a kid. She was extremely smart, but she hated school. So she was always pulling pranks, trying to get kicked out. And she tells this story of hiding underneath the table during one of her parents' dinner parties and releasing a box of fleas to torment the guests. (laughs) And after what she's told us about her mother, I don't really feel that bad about it. Uh, Her parents sent her away for a bit to a convent to try to tame her willful spirit. And uh, She really credits her stubbornness to the fact that she was given goat milk as an infant after her wet nurse was fired for being a drunkard. So she really has this wonderful imagination, and I am
1: fully on board with it. <laughs> so by her early 20s, um, she was towing the quote-unquote proper line a little bit better. She was Ooh. studying philosophy at university, but then in 1911, she dropped a bombshell On her conservative family when she published a volume of very sensuous poetry called Arethusa. She had kept her writing secret from her family, but she had shared it with one of her cousins, a little bit more progressive member of her family. He was an art dealer, and he thought it was so smashing that he actually arranged for a publisher. But when it came out, and it was actually widely reviewed and very well received um, by the Italian um, press, she was then disgraced in her family's eyes because of the erotic nature of the poems. And they began pressuring her to accept the marriage proposal from a Russian man who had been courting her, but she did not love and she did not want to marry him.
2: So in order to defuse this situation, she jumped on an opportunity to move to London to become a nanny to one of her sister's friends. And it was there in 1914, so I think she's 24 now, that she attended a lecture given by Wilhelm Vent de Kurler a handsome, charismatic theosophist, a philosopher or mystic of sorts, have you?
1: And the study of theosophy was actually quite trendy at the time. Lots of intellectual and artistic types were were
2: followers of theosophy. And some of them were quite wealthy. Yeah, yeah. This particular theosophy lecture ended up being a critical juncture in Scaparelli's life because immediately following the talk, Scaparelli and Vent de Curler engaged in a passionate discussion and maybe a little bit more because she spent the night, and they were married in a civil ceremony within 24 hours. <laughs> Seems a little rushed. Yeah. We would like to tell you that this story had a fairy tale ending, but it did
1: not. No,
2: this guy was a serious piece of work. So after a brief period living in France, the couple relocated to New York City in 1916. On the ship passage over, Scaparole became friends with fellow passenger Gabrielle Bacabia, Wife of the Dada artist Francis Picabia, and Gabby would prove to be an important figure in Scaparelli's future. Once in New York, Scaparelli and her husband fell in with a smart set of avant-garde artists that included Man Ray, Edward Steichen, and Marcel Duchamp, and of course the Picabias.
1: And once in the United States, Venter Curler proved himself to be an all-around narrative Well, he was spending way more time partying and womanizing than he was looking for potential lecture opportunities or even just a job. He would disappear for long periods of time, and when he was present, he was purportedly both mentally and physically abusive to his wife. At the time, the couple had been living off of Elsa's dowry, which was now getting perilously low. During these long periods of separation from her husband, Scaparelli was forced to take a whole host of other odd jobs, including watching the ticker tape on Wall Street, which she said that she was a complete failure at, she also would go to thrift stores and, and find um, like great little things and then flip them and turn them for a profit. She even worked on a really early film as an extra, thanks to her friend Edward Steichen.
2: Her situation became all the more desperate when in 1920 she gave birth to their daughter, who she officially named Maria Luisa after her mother, but from the very beginning she was called Gogo. And on the day of their daughter's birth, Scabrelli had no idea where her good-for-nothing husband was. <laughs> It was around this time that he was actually conducting an affair with the modern dancer Isadora Duncan, and this was the last straw it took for Scaparilli to leave him for good after six years of neglect and abuse.
1: Yeah, there's actually this part in her autobiography where she specifically says that Isadora Duncan marked her husband to be conquered, and she took off all of her clothes and started dancing in front of him, and Scaparelli was in the room when this happened. Not cool, Isadora. <laughs> Bad Not Isadora. Cool at all. So... Well, Elsa loved her daughter. Gogo was a complication in an already difficult situation. Scapper really needed to work in order to support them both. So she made this really difficult decision to place Gogo in the care of a professional nurse in Connecticut. She herself remained in New York. And of this time, she wrote, I had no other interest but Gogo. And she goes on to say a little bit later that after she paid her rent, the little money I had left went to the nurse. I was experiencing gnawing, black hunger, relieved by only the occasional fruit or a sausage or a coffee from the stall where the bus drivers used to go. I became so utterly depressed, I no longer wanted to go on.
2: So just when it seemed like things could not get worse, they did. Because around one year of age, it became apparent that Gogo had polio. Gabby Picabia came to her friend's aid and suggested that Elsa and her daughter, leave New York and come to Paris to have Gogo treated by a French doctor. This doctor ended up providing the treatments necessary to reverse the damage that polio had done to her legs. But this took years, and he and his family really cared for Gogo as if she were their own child.
1: Now in Paris, Elsa was scrambling, once again, to figure out a means of support for herself and Gogo's mounting medical bills. Through her artist friends in New York, she had now expanded her circle of friends to include the Parisian avant-garde, counting artist Pablo Picasso, Jean Cocteau, and the interior designer Jean-Michel Franck amongst her circle. But it would be Paul Paré who would play a role in her becoming a fashion designer. He liked the struggling Elsa so much that he would dress her for free, and he enthusiastically encouraged her to become a fashion designer professionally.
2: And it's funny because I thought I knew everything about Paré, but I was really not aware of this connection. It makes sense though considering he did this often. He he really helped out young and up-and-coming talents, and he considered his patronage of artists one of his greatest contributions to his era. So he was very generous in this regard, I must say. So it makes sense that if he saw something in the young scap, he would want to help her.
1: Yeah, so Scapparelli finally took Poiré's advice at the age of 37, starting with some highly unusual sweaters, and we're going to learn more about this after a break from our sponsor. So join us,
2: dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android.
1: Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year, Mm -hmm. so you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. welcome back. So back to those sweaters. They were quite special and a little unusual. Yeah, so after
2: a year or so of doing some work for other Paris fashion houses, Scaparelli struck out on her own in January of 1927. And success really came fairly quickly thanks in part to some whimsical knitwear design she was inventing. She liked to say she invented clothes rather than designing them, and I just love that. The sweaters came about after she bumped into an American friend wearing a sweater that used an unusual knitting technique, which created an effect that looked a bit like tweed. Scrap's friend put her in touch with the Armenian woman who was responsible for this hand-knitted sweater. The ensuing collaboration between Schiaparelli and a group of Armenian knitters, led by Arusag Mikaelian, resulted in one of her most famous designs, the bow knot sweater, which featured a Trump loy scarf and bow knitted into the neckline.
1: And yes, we will put images up of these bow knot sweaters that she did up on our Instagram feed. You can follow us at dressed underscore podcast. Cass, maybe we should define this term trompe l'oeil for any of our listeners who may not be familiar with it. Do you want me to do it or do you want to do it?
2: Oh, I'll do it. Uh, It's really an art history term that's used to refer to when painters will create a sort of visual illusion. Literally, it means to trick the eye. So usually this means uh, the creation of an illusion of something being three-dimensional when it's actually painted on a 2D surface. But in Scap's case, it was being knit into the surface instead of being painted on the surface.
1: And it wasn't only ladies of Parisian fashion circles who responded to these somewhat surreal sweaters. Women all over the world went gaga for them. And that actually maybe might hold true for somebody that's in the room with me right now. <laughs> Cass, if I'm not mistaken, you're actually wearing this sweater right now. I wish I was
2: wearing an original Scaparelli, but I do love this sweater so much that I sewed a picture of it onto my t-shirt. <laughs> I call this my this is not a sweater t-shirt.
1: <laughs> uh, and I'm I'm actually a little bit guilty here too because I'm actually wearing my Nars lipstick in the color called Scap. Yeah, it's pretty fabulous. <laughs> But uh, back to the sweaters, those tromp l'oeil sweaters were wildly successful. American manufacturers and department stores knocked them off left and right. And not only her bow sweater, she also made other trompe l'oeil designs that were knitted into the sweater. Like perhaps there might be a belt, a trompe l'oeil belt kind of knitted at the waistline. And she used this technique to also make other types of knits, like gloves and hats. And one of my all-time favorite uh, Scaparelli items was this pair of knit gloves that she made, where the fingernails are colored. Oh, that's yeah, one of my favorites. Yeah, too. and she also made these in another collection several years later, but she did them in black suede, and the fingernails were red snake kit skin. I mean, that's like deadly and sexy. In terms of her being copied, though. Scap really claimed that she didn't really mind so much. Uh, It was her feeling that when people stopped knocking off her work or stopped licensing her brand's name, that it would mean that she was no longer relevant.
2: And I find this reaction so refreshing. There are a lot of fashion designers who conversely spent a lot of time and energy trying to stop copyists. So within the first year, Scap's fledging business had done so well, she was able to expand her operations across the board. Thanks in part to taking on a financial backer. She moved her business out of her tiny apartment and into proper work rooms on the Rue de la Paix. She also expanded her offerings to include swim and beach wear. So she first made her name doing sportswear. And in fact, the sign outside her business read Scapparelli pour le sport. She actually draws many vanguard sportswomen of the early 20th century, for their individual sporting activities. And these clients included famous female golf and tennis champions, as well as aviatrixes Amelia Earhart and Amy Mollison, for whom she created an entire wardrobe for one of her round-the-world journeys.
1: Because these women had specific needs for ease of movement, for many of them, SCAP created divided skirts, which were basically what we now call culottes. And some listeners may remember in our episode on Elizabeth Hawes. We spoke about how this was considered shocking in the 1930s. Get it, Cass? Shocking? Okay,
2: listeners. April just made a pun, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought you said we were not going to be doing on this I show. I know. I
1: did, but this was way too easy. It's, it's hard not to. Um, for any of the of you who are just learning about Scaparelli, shocking was the name of the riotous shade of pink. That was her signature color, the color of the lipstick that I'm wearing, um, Shocking Pink. And um, Shocking was also the name of one of her most famous perfumes that was very successful. Well, I hope to hear
2: many more puns from you in the future. I'm Ms. trying out <laughs> Back to those uh, culottes she was making. They were basically fodder for the press. When Scaparelli wore a pair to London for a buying trip in 1931, she caused an uproar in the British press. This is sensationalism at its best. How dare women attempt to dress like men in public? Even for sport, this was still controversial. But in classic contradictory fashion, the following year at a lecture she gave to the fashion group International in New York, Scaparelli specifically stated that she disapproved of women wearing trousers on the streets. But culottes were okay, trousers not.
1: I don't know. I'm confused, too. These differences are probably very subtle to us now, but at the time they were considered much more distinct the difference between a divided skirt and quote unquote pants. Mm-hmm. But like you said, Scap was an enigma to herself, even sometimes. But thanks to the success of her sportswear, Scap really quickly developed a reputation for being one of fashion's most cutting edge designers. Manufacturers and department stores all over the world clamored to partner with her. And in the end, this became a huge part of her business model. In our collection at FIT, we have so, so many original sketches documenting the licensing of her designs in the United States, starting from the very beginning of her career in 1927, 1928, all the way until the tail end. And these licensing deals or business deals that she was doing with others were especially important um, in seeing her business through the financial crisis of the Great Depression.
2: What type of licensing deals was she doing?
1: She would actually license, like, suits and dresses and sweater designs to American manufacturers who were doing them ready-to-wear versus couture.
2: Very interesting. One of the reasons people at the time loved her work was due to the fact that it was completely and utterly unique. No one was making fashion that even came close to the boldness of some of Scaparelli's creations. Yves Saint Laurent once said of her, quote, Madame Scaparelli trampled down everything that was commonplace. She cheated and tricked by inventing.
1: Yeah, her designs are clearly rooted in that very specific moment of modernity, that very moment of art and technology. Former Vogue editor Bettina Ballard once said about Scaparelli that she was, quote, the most talked about couturier, the most indicative of her own times. So, as Scaparilli expanded her lines to encompass all types of women's wear in the 1930s, so I'm talking suiting, day dresses, evening wear, outerwear accessories, you know, the whole range, she incorporated the latest developments in textile science, and she began using fabrics that no other couture house was using at the time, including a ton of synthetics. She used weird, crinkly crepes that were kind of reminiscent of tree bark, and she would also have custom-produced these thick, quilted rayons. And my favorite is her use of rotofane. Um And rotofane was this clear, brittle, almost like plastic fabric um, that Vogue touted as the closest thing to glass.
2: Yeah. And then, you know, the 1960s is really associated with the use of synthetic fabric. So she was really ahead of her time. Decades. Uh, she was never afraid to push well into territory of the bazaar Her color theory was brazen, and the influence of art movements of the era like Dada and Surrealism are explicit. And her close friendship with the who's who of the modern art world parlayed their influence into the clothing she created.
1: You mean invented.
2: Yes, invented. (laughs) Salvador Dali was one of her most notable collaborators of the 1930s, and they really both admired each other's work equally. And Dali spoke in interviews about Schiaparelli's rightful place in the Parisian avant-garde and his desire to collaborate with her. And the resulting works are some of Scaparelli's most iconic pieces to which the world is I know. eternally grateful. I mean, where
1: do we even start? With I don't these know. Casts? What's your favorite uh, uh, Schiaparelli dolly piece that they did together? Talk
2: about hard to pick. I really love so many pieces. Um, let's see. I have to say I really, really enjoy the surrealist subtlety of the chest of drawers suit. The jacket has appliques down the front that give the suggestion of drawers and a bureau. But it's actually quite a
1: chic suit. It is. And did you know that suit is based on one of Dolly's paintings? Yeah. The painting um, is called Anthropomorphic Cabinet from 1936, if anybody wants to look it up. And one of my favorites from their collaboration is also based on another one of the Dolly paintings. And it's this dress from the summer 1938 collection. The dress itself is a sleeveless narrow column that barely kind of skims the body's curves. And the hem pulls out on the floor and it's made in a printed silk crepe. The crepe was once pale blue, but in in the museum collection that it's in now, it's kind of faded to a white um, shade. But the print motif is what makes this dress so special. It's another one of her favorite trompe l'oeil designs. But what it's supposed to convey is that there's tears into skin that peel back and reveal a wine-colored flesh below. And remnants of this torn skin linger like shreds of pink. The overall effect is far less gruesome than it sounds. There's actually a sort of um, certain graphic subtlety to it. But the print, the print itself was based on a shredded gown worn by one of the figures in Dolly's painting, three young surrealist women holding in their arms the skins of an orchestra, Whoa. <laughs> you got to love Dali for everything. Um, but this particular painting that the print that, um, that she used is based on, it's part of a trio of related paintings from 1936. And Scaparelli herself actually owned one of the other paintings in that trio. Hers was called Necrophiliac Springtime. Where? Where are we going with this? <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Uh, don't worry, don't worry. Despite the somewhat distressing title of Scap's painting, the subject matter of these two works are comparatively tame. They are both set in Dolly's signature sort of deserted, foreboding landscape. Um, and the figures in the painting, they wear these long, clinging gowns that kind of sweep the ground. But this is the special part about these paintings. Their heads were entirely replaced by avoids of small, bright flowers. No
2: coincidence, mind you. I really see what you're saying now about her planting the seeds in her face as a child and why the strange and fantastic nature of surrealist art would appeal to her. She was basically a surrealist before surrealists existed.
1: Yeah, yeah. And this idea of, like, forcing beauty will come up again. we'll kind of, I think, talk about that here in a minute. But um, before we do, I want to talk about a few other collaborations between Scaparelli and Dolly. Um, another one was another textile print, and this one was a print um, adapted from a drawing that Dolly had done of a lobster, and Scaparelli used um, an adaptation for it as a print on beachwear and also a very famous organza evening gown. We say it's famous because it's pretty much immortalized in a series of photos by Cecil Beaton that he had taken of the Duchess of Windsor or Wallace Simpson wearing the gown, and another one of these um, lobster organza gowns was also owned by the socialite and fashion icon Daisy Fellows. Both of these women were dedicated Scaparelli clients.
2: Okay, I lied. That might actually be my favorite. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Ard, so but then ard.
2: there's actually I, it's hard to pick because then there's the oversized high heel that's worn upside down on the head that Scap and Dolly created for the winter collection later that year. That is amazing. Yeah,
1: so it's a hat. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, and we can't forget the skeleton dress of 1938. No, and this it, this dress was a long sleeved, floor length, slinky, matte black silk number where she used trapunto. Um, trapunto is a sort of like a, a stuffed quilting technique, and she used her puncho to create raised surfaces on the dress, which sort of traced the outline of the wearer's skeleton. I don't know, maybe I'm making her work seem scary all of a sudden? I hope not, because it's not. Her clothes are actually quite chic, and in fact, many punk designers of the 1970s and the 1980s, like Xander Rhodes, have actually cited Scaparelli's aesthetic as a precursor that was necessary to the development of punk style.
2: Maybe her collaborations with her friend Jean Cocteau are slightly less Yes, than. <laughs> they're
1: actually really elegant and beautiful. Yeah,
2: his sinuous Cyrillus line drawings were adapted into embroidery motifs that were used on her clothing. Schiaparelli used embroidery and beading in the most spectacular way. And she had a long-standing partnership with the legendary couture embroiderer
1: Lesage. And Lesage actually still carries on this grand tradition of beading and embroidery and all these different types of embellishments for couture houses today. And when we come back from the sponsor break, we're going to talk about some of the charming themed collections that Scap was famous for. Some of them are simply magic. Beginning in 1935, Scaparelli began conceiving her collections thematically. We might think of this as somewhat commonplace now in couture, but it was not at the time. This legacy of her thinking kind of lives on in the way that some of 21st century's fashion greatest minds conceptualize their collections. The late, great Alexander McQueen comes to my mind specifically. Mm-hmm.
2: Scabrelli had reached yet another milestone in 1935, relocating to 21 Place Vendôme. Her new collection was decorated by her friend Jean-Michel Franck, who also did her private residences for her.
1: Okay, I just have to interject because I know if any of you are out there are hardcore... Early modernist design enthusiasts, some of you are probably dying, because Frank is considered an icon mm-hmm. of Art Deco interior design and furniture. Um, there's this really funny story. Once um, Coco Chanel went over to Scaparelli's house for a dinner party, and reportedly she left disgusted with the starkness of Frank's ultra-modern interiors and furniture. It was like simply, his work was simply too austere for her. But Then again, Cass, as we know, Scab and Chanel were not friends. No,
2: that's actually a bit of an understatement because they really didn't like each other very much. Chanel once famously referred to her as, quote, that Italian artist who's making clothes, end quote. And she did not mean that as a compliment.
1: Nope. I think that's like the 1930s version of throwing shade. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But uh, back to these thematic collections. What? Tell us what happened in 1935.
2: The theme of the 1935 collection was Stop, Look, Listen, and she conceived of it as a kind of moment to reflect on the successes of the House of Scaparelli to date. So an enduring creation from this collection was her newspaper print textile, which was a riff on the paper collage pieces Dada artists were fond of creating. So in a cheeky wink of self-congratulations, Scaparelli created a print that was a haphazard juxtaposition of actual press clippings about her, from newspapers around the world, in English, German, Swedish, and French. She had this printed on both cotton and silk, and the print would become a signature of the house used for years to come, particularly the goods she offered in her ready-to-wear boutique, the Scap Shop, which she had first opened on the premises of her couture house in 1932. And this is a really early example of a ready-to-wear boutique.
1: Yeah, and, and Bettina Ballard talks um, about her boutique as being maybe not necessarily the first because mm-hmm. um, we do know that perhaps Lalong was doing ready-to-wear before, but um, she says it's the first important one, mm-hmm. it's the first very successful one. Um, but if any of you <laughs> know anything about these newspaper prints, I've actually been trying to track down one of these silk scarves that she did in this print for years. So anyone, anyone... Please email me if you are looking to divest yourself of one. She also made handbags out of this newspaper print cast. She did men's lounging pajamas, blouses, hats, all sorts of stuff. So please email me if you have any these newsprint <laughs> items for sale. <laughs> As a matter of fact, these sort of
2: playfully amusing prints in general became a signature of the house. Uh, one of my favorite, favorite, favorite collections of hers is the summer 1938 collection that had a circus theme.
1: Oh, it's so sweet. And
2: one of the prints created for this collection featured carousels and children riding the carousel animals, rabbits, steers, swans, horses, and an occasional choo-choo train all seemingly scribbled onto the surface of the silk. It's quite whimsical and fantastic. Uh, buttons in this collection might be circus horses, and there were a handbag shaped like balloons. Scapperly herself called it her, quote, most riotous, swaggering collection, end quote, in her biography.
1: Cass, I don't know if you know this, but the two dresses that we were talking about earlier that she did with Dolly, mm-hmm. the, the flesh-tear dress and the skeleton dress, mm-hmm. they were actually from this particular circus collection. Oh, that's interesting. Um, And the skeleton dress is believed that it was inspired by these so-called sideshow freaks. So maybe it makes a little bit more sense now.
2: Yeah, it definitely does. It was once said that Schiaparelli, quote, changed the outline of fashion from soft to hard, from vague to definite. When you learn the backstories behind some of her clothing, her creations are automatically made just so much richer.
1: Yeah. So, 1938, she was kind of killing it because she followed up with two more of these dramatic-themed collections. For fall 1938, she looked to ancient mythology for her pagan collection, where nature reigned supreme. Her dresses were adorned with abundant flora, and you just have all these, like, cascades of leaves and flowers, like, flowing down their fronts. She used that crinkly tree bark textile that I referenced earlier, Mm -hmm. and she even used three-dimensional insects for the jewelry that she produced in this particular collection. Yeah, those
2: bracelets and necklaces are Are really
1: well-known. Yeah. Really well-known pieces of hers. The
2: natural world continued to be her inspiration for her next collection for winter of 1938. Stars, the cosmos, and astrological symbolism collide. And this is probably the most coveted of all of her collections today. A single embroidered and sequined jacket from Scaparelli's Zodiac collection can command six figures at auction in the current market. And please Google this jacket immediately because it is amazing. There's
1: been more than a few of them for sale Mm -hmm. um, the last uh, few years. And there's a reason why these pieces can command such high prices it's because she really hit her high point of her work with the embroidery house Lesage in this particular collection. Some of her pieces are these tour de forces of craftsmanship. The embellishment on a single jacket could take up to 300 hours to complete. Wow. So I also have a little known fact about the Zodiac collection. Do you want to hear? You never
2: even have to ask. <laughs> you know I want to know everything.
1: Okay. So from her childhood, Scaparelli had three moles on one of her cheeks. And her uncle, the one who was the astronomer, he called them the Big Dipper. So you'll frequently see these references throughout her career in the graphic design, perhaps promoting her house or the actual clothing themselves to either the Big Dipper or stars in general. So it's a little bit of a family joke. See, family was important to her. It was. It was. It was. I'm not saying it wasn't. But Lesage, Lesage Embroidery takes on another stunning appearance in her fall 1939 collection, which is known as her music collection. Shining golden bells and musical instruments appear on dresses and gloves and fully functioning music boxes were tucked away in hats and in belts. And there's this really, really, really great photo of Gogo, who is now about 18 or 19 at this point, And she's wearing an evening gown at a dance And it's embellished with these really oversized musical scores and accessorized with one of these music box belts. So while this was the fall 1939 collection, it was actually presented in April for the following season. Cass, why am I pointing this out? This very specific, there's a very specific reason. World
2: War II. Yes. So not a great time for Paris, not a great time for anyone, actually, and a truly horrific time for many. War between France and Germany was officially declared in September of 1939.
1: Exactly. And when this happened, Scaparelli began to prepare for the inevitable. She slashed her staff from 600 to 150, as did many other couture houses at this time. And she began creating clothing with the necessities of war in mind. She began creating garments with oversized pockets, which eliminated the need for handbags, and she even did practical warm jumpsuits, which were editorialized at the time as being the perfect in the event of an air raid. It seems so strange now, but this was this was the reality of the times. And Scaparole wasn't the only one um, shifting their focus. Many of her fellow couturiers at the time were like-minded. One couturier house created fur-lined shelter boots. Others did hats that incorporated small flashlights, um, while others did ensembles that had glow-in-the-dark buttons that were, like, supposed to light your way in the dark. But in a radio interview later that year that Scaparelli gave in the United States, she said this. She said, our best efforts went into those clothes. It was funny the way we had to cut corners. There was not much that we could depend on. And that is why in my collection we will find pockets not only taking the place of handbags, which are clumsy when one is already burdened with a gas mask, but also adding the finishing touch to models which had to be simple. Except when we dine privately, our clothes must meet all the strange demands imposed on us as a life in a country at war. Paris
2: would fall to occupying Nazi forces in June of 1940, while a portion of France remained under the French rule known as the Vichy government. But when this happened, Scaparole left for the United States, where she had signed a contract six months previous, committing to a 30-city lecture tour. And despite this radical shift in circumstances, she kept her obligation. This decision aided, I'm sure, by the fact that Gogo was already living in the United States at that time.
1: The lecture tour was organized by the American media company CBS, and it was a smashing success. Although, it can be said that her platform that Parisian couture reigned supreme did not always particularly set well with the American fashion professionals in the audience. Yeah. <laughs> um, but following the tour, she, she made the very intentional and specific decision to return to Paris, um, occupied by the Germans, to continue to oversee her business. But this was brief. Because what happened was she came under scrutiny by the Nazis as a fairly famous, um, you know, person working in Paris. But she also came under criticism by the French. And that's because she was Italian. And, of course, the Italians were part of the Axis forces. And her Italian heritage made her suspicious in the the eyes of some French people, despite the fact that she was a French citizen. And she'd, she'd been a French citizen for almost a decade. So
2: back to the United States and to Gogo, she went for the next four years. But despite the absence of its namesake, the House of Scaparelli did remain open in Paris under the direction of Irene Dana and the head tailor, René, who kept the house afloat despite Nazi restrictions and shortages in materials due to rationing.
1: Scap mainly spent her time um, these four years in America during the war of volunteering and coordinating charitable relief efforts for France. She organized concerts and lectures and art exhibitions of French culture. One of her endeavors that stands out from the rest is the role that she played in organizing the exhibition The First Papers of Surrealism, which she worked on alongside artist Marcel Duchamp and André Breton in New York in 1942. And I think, uh, if I remember correctly, Peggy Guggenheim had a hand in organizing this as well. So there were some heavy hitters working on this show. But while she was in America, she absolutely did have tons of offers from the American fashion industry, but in her autobiography, she states very explicitly that the only clothes that she made during this time were for her friend's dog. <laughs> so what do you think, Cass? Does Madame Grey Charmed, I'm sure, need some 1940s scaparelli canine couture?
2: Absolutely. <laughs> and listeners, April's referring to her beyond adorable French bulldog Gigi. And if Gigi is anything like her mommy, she loves vintage and Schiaparelli.
1: That's true. I confess, but I I, I don't feel bad about it. Um, and on a side note, I just want to say Marissa Berenson has written about her grandmother's obsession with dogs. So this really isn't a tangent. Just think of it as like a fun fact inserted into our discussion of surrealist exhibitions yeah. and the Second World War. <laughs>
2: Dog clothes would not be the last clothes Scaparelli would invent. She returned to Paris in July of 1945 to find her couture house not only still in operation, but making a profit. So during the years of the war, her prior customer base waned, but new Scaparelli clients came in the form of wives and girlfriends of Nazi officers, and also French women who found themselves newly rich by supplying foodstuffs like butter, eggs, and cheese to the black market.
1: So wait, we should probably give people a little bit of an explanation about why she had Nazi clients. Yes.
2: And this does by no means make her a Nazi or a Nazi sympathizer. During Nazi occupation, there was actually a movement by the Germans to move the haute couture industry to Germany. And fashion designers worked really, really hard to keep this industry in France and keep it alive. And this included having to cater to Nazi clients to survive.
1: Yeah. And the fashion trades were a huge part of France's economy. If the entire clothing industry, or even just simply the haute couture industry, closed up shop during the occupation, the economy of France would have collapsed. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fate of Parisian couture during World War II is really fascinating. And I've done quite a bit of work on this subject. So we promised to do an episode about this in the future, cast. We've already had one listener request mm-hmm. for a podcast on this particular topic, but we're not going to delve into this now because we're going to stick with Scaparelli. But these warriors they were very, very difficult. Just about everything, including food, was rationed as the Germans directed a good portion of France's resources elsewhere in order to further their war effort. So when Scaparilli returned to Paris a year after the occupation had ended, this rationing still included textiles and many of the supplies necessary in the creation of a collection. At the time, the governing body of Haute Couture, the Chambre Syndicale, they actually had a say And how much fabric each couture house could get, how much they were allotted, and how many designs they could, you know, send down the runway in each collection.
2: So about these collections that she produced immediately upon her return, Scaparelli says in her autobiography, "quote I fell into step not with what had happened in between, but with myself in 1940. She hadn't exactly kept up with the times. So perhaps in an attempt to rectify this, a young whippersnapper of a design assistant, Pierre Cardin." joined the team in 1945,
1: but this was brief-lived. Another famous name would join the house of Scaparelli and have a longer tenure, Hubert de Givenchy. In 1947, a 20-year-old Givenchy was placed in charge of the ready-to-wear boutique, and he led this really successfully until 1951 when he left to establish his own couture house. And Scaparelli was apparently quite dismayed, um, if not outright upset by his departure, Um, it's said that they kind of had a falling out about him leaving and that they never spoke again. Oh, no. Which is, like, really, really sad, as we all are, because Givenchy actually passed away just a few weeks ago, very recently, on March 10th, 2018.
2: What a prolific career this man had, and we will absolutely explore it more thoroughly in an upcoming episode on the Golden Age of Haute Couture, so stay tuned. By 1949, Scaparelli had, quote, reasserted her mastery, in quote, according to Newsweek, who did an article on the couturier. A particular note was some of the sharply tailored suits from this period. Scap had long been known for her suits, which many a fashion editor considered the backbone of their wardrobe. Vogue editor Bettina Ballard notes in her memoirs that, quote, in the 30s, it was a badge of being well-dressed to wear a Scaparelli suit. There are still many women who yearn for the confidence her clothes gave them. Scaparelli customers did not have to worry as to whether she was beautiful or not. She was a type. She was noticed wherever she went, protected by an armor of amusing, conversation-making smartness. Her clothes belonged to Scaparelli more than they belonged to her. It was like borrowing someone else's chic and along with it, their
1: assurance. And this brings us to a really crucial point. Scaparelli felt that being beautiful was not really a requirement of being elegant. In fact, she stated that it was often unattractive women that were truly the most chic because they had to work so much harder to establish a personal style which suited them and highlighted their best assets.
2: So it feels like she really came to turn with her mother's admonishments in her childhood, and she quite proved her mother wrong. Yeah. 1954 saw the publication of Scaparelli's autobiography, Shocking Life, that we have mentioned several times. This would also be the year of her final collection, the overall nature of the haute couture industry was evolving, and the house's Scaparelli had never quite regained the cachet she had enjoyed during the pre-war era. An attempt to streamline the business was unsuccessful, and in December 1954, the couture house filed for bankruptcy.
1: But the Scaparelli name would live on in the form of many, many licensing deals that she conducted throughout her career— and also in the form of her very successful perfume and cosmetics company, which had been organized as an entirely separate business entity. The revenues from her fragrance and cosmetics company would continue to support Elsa in her fine lifestyle for the next two decades. On November 13, 1973, Elsa Scaparelli passed away at the age of 83 at her beloved home in Paris. Perhaps a fitting epithet, once again in the words of Bettina Ballard, she said, quote, to be shocking was the snobism of the moment, and she was the leader in this art.
2: Until next week, we hope you consider doing something a little shocking when you get dressed. For spectacular images supporting this week's episode, please see our Instagram feed at dressed underscored podcast. This is also our Twitter handle. You can find us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. And if you'd like to email us, please do so at dressed at howstuffworks.com and as always we have lists of additional reading on our website
1: www.dresspodcast.com This week's episode was recorded at Mouth Media Network Studio in New York City which is powered by Sennheiser Learn more about Mouth Media at mouthmedianetwork.com